0: the Water Values Podcast, Session 16.
1: Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey.
0: Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Today, Neil Grigg joins us for a great conversation about water conflict. Neil is a longtime professor at Colorado State University, and he serves as the only river master that the United States Supreme Court has ever appointed for the Pecos River, earning that appointment in 1988. In the session today, Neil describes the root causes of water conflict. He relates several stories of water conflict from around the United States, including the Apalachicola-Chattahoochee-Flint River System conflict amongst Georgia, Alabama, and Florida that still has found no resolution after over 25 years. Neil also discusses governance structures in water conflict and provides his experience as the Rivermaster of the Pecos River. This is another interview that you'll get a lot out of, so enjoy. Well, I heard no complaints with the disclaimer coming at the end of the podcast, so that's where we'll keep it. Make sure you listen all the way until the end for that disclaimer. I know you will. With that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Professor Gregg, thanks so much for coming on to the Water Values Podcast. Greatly appreciate your time. Uh, do you mind if I call you Neil? Oh, that's fine. That's what I like to be called. <laughs> Terrific. Uh, well, Neil, could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got started in water? Yes, and Dave, thanks for having me on the podcast
1: program. And uh, it's always fun to talk about water. <laughs> There's so many things going on, and uh, I've, I got into this field of water a long time ago. Uh, it was almost like it was um, intended to be, or something, because when I was growing up in the uh, South, I spent a lot of time on the rivers there and creeks, and got an interest in water and uh, you know the natural side of. of of water rather than the water business. And then uh, when I was in college, I had a chance to visit Colorado. It was in uh, 1959, a long time ago. And I noticed uh, how different that was from those southern rivers. So many um, issues related to a need for irrigation, you know, the dry climate and so on. And then after I got out of the service in the 60s, um, I decided that uh, water was going to be my field and I went back to graduate school and uh, got a couple of degrees. They were focused mainly on uh, the engineering aspects of water rather than water management, which I work more in now. And I had a chance while also working as a consulting engineer to start to see some things about uh, Colorado's uh, water management system, met the state engineer, could see what they were doing and so on. And Uh, When I first came to Colorado to work in the mid-60s, it was right after the 1965 flood, and there was a lot of attention to the disaster aspect of water as well as water rights and all of that. And it was kind of mind-boggling to see how the Colorado water rights system worked compared to the way it works in uh, humid areas. One of the things that I really noticed was how if you had the water right, you could divert a whole river and drive the stream and it just somehow seemed kind of funny. Um, But now when you see how the Colorado water law system works, it's not funny at all, it's part of it and we're still adapting to that. So then later I kind of uh, branched off into different subjects like urban water infrastructure and so on and had a chance to work in state government in North Carolina for a while where I was in charge of the clean water program and permits and things like that. And I began to see another dimension of water conflicts, that it's not just over the ownership of water, you also have all kinds of environmental uh, types of conflicts and people having different views of it and so on. So by the 80s, um, I had some experience in Colorado water. I had some experience in operating uh, programs and dealing with conflicts. and. That's when I was appointed as River Master of the Pecos River by the Supreme Court. That's a long story as to how I became appointed, but the r- main reasons were they needed someone who understood a little about Western water and also had been involved in some of the administrative issues and who also was not involved in either of the states uh, uh, that were uh, involved with the suit. So by then, this was the latter part of the 60s and early uh, 90s, I said 60s, I meant a lot of part of the 80s and early uh, 90s, Uh, I was doing the Pecos River and also working um, in my regular teaching, and I was directing the Colorado Water Resources Research Institute, so I had a lot of things going on, um, all focused on water management and uh, conflicts and how we resolve the many things that are going on. And... That included international work, both working in other countries as well as helping the students that came here from other countries. So now, if we kind of fast forward, I'm still doing the Pecos and still working on water management like um, I described. Uh, we're seeing something uh, which is a lot more complex than anybody could have ever thought it would be and it looks like it's just going to keep on getting more complex as the demands on water increase. So that's just a short view of my background, and um, it, yeah, hopefully it will explain a little bit about um, how I got to the point I am now.
0: Yeah, you've you've indicated a few things in there that I think we'll, we'll get into. Uh, you, you mentioned water conflict several times, and also your experience as the river master of the Pecos River, and I think let's let's – kind of connect the dots, how we get from, say, water conflict to the system of governance that involves the river master. So let's talk about water conflict in general. Can you provide maybe a historical overview of water conflict?
1: Sure. And it's it's a good question. And um, when you think about uh, water, uh, one of the ways that scientists talk about the different conflicts is they'll use the word scale, and they'll say, well, you can have small-scale Problems. you have large scale problems. And that's a convenient word to use because um, water uh, is a local thing. It comes in small watersheds and then they flow into larger watersheds, eventually into big rivers and so on. And so um, the bottom line is that we're all connected uh, in the use of this water as it goes from upstream to downstream. But the people who are downstream normally not going to have any idea of who the people upstream are or what they're doing and vice versa. So uh, you've got the, sort of the generic conflict that arises because we have to share that water, but the, the people are not, there's no mechanism to, to really share it. Everybody is going to be exploiting the water for their own use um, and, and trying to maximize their, their benefit from it. And unless you have a, a way to resolve those conflicts, uh, it's just going to be totally inequitable. So historically, coming up with a way to resolve those conflicts was the origin of water law. Uh, we had a a visiting uh, scholar here a few years ago. I worked very closely with him, uh, Aloin Berger from South Africa, and he had been a, a justice on the South African Supreme Court. And he took an interest in water law and wrote <laughs> a couple of papers about the history of water law and thinking, and he went back to Roman times and all of that. And um, it it was amazing to me how much thinking had gone in, uh, you know, historically about how you'd resolve these water conflicts under different judicial systems and um, political arrangements, community systems, and so on. If you don't have the rule of law in operation where you can have some kind of an organized system, you're probably asking for trouble in it. But to make a long story short, those conflicts almost built into the nature of water, and it's this sharing uh, water as a common resource, uh, flowing from upstream to downstream, the fact that people depend on it so much for everything that they do, it creates all those conflicts.
0: Great insights there, Neil. Um, The nature of water is that it follows gravity or the path of least resistance, and it does not respect political boundaries. Um, And I think... That is a major component in how water conflict arises. What are some of the current examples you could give us uh, where water conflict is present?
1: Well, there are lots of examples. And, again, you can go back to that question of scale. And uh, you can look at um, small watersheds. Uh, I'll give you one example right here in Colorado, close to where I am, that's a watershed level example on the Big Thompson River. Uh, it just flooded again uh, recently. It's been in the headlines and people who are not familiar with it would would want to know that it generally starts up in Rocky Mountain National Park and flows on down and eventually um, enters the Platte River just a little bit south of Greeley. Um, so it's a small watershed. I don't think it's uh, more than um, I don't know the mileage but it's going to got to be less than 1000 square miles maybe 500 square miles something like that I'm just guessing but it um receives trans mountain water from uh the Colorado River basin um through the Adams Tunnel and the Colorado Big Thompson project well that water originates up in the headwaters of the Colorado River where we're having a lot of mountain resort development ski areas and so on up around Estes Park And um, it's just just possible that all that development is going to increase the nutrient level, water quality uh, levels of the um, headwaters of the Colorado River, which will be transported over to uh, the eastern slope via that tunnel. So the the quality of our Big Thompson water uh, is going to be um, affected by something that people do over on the western slope. And we need a way to negotiate that, work together, and manage it and so on, that kind of an issue is constantly in front of the Environmental Protection Agency trying to figure out how you can regulate different um, aspects of water so that they can uh, deal, we can deal collectively uh, with issues uh, like that. That's a small-scale example. I could give you a larger-scale example if you'd be interested in that, too. Yeah, let's hear those. Well, uh, there's many of them, and in the U.S., um, Uh, we have uh, the the interstate water compact system is in place to um, deal with a lot of the ownership issues of water. But it's not always um, completely understood by folks that uh, water conflicts go well beyond ownership questions. And one large scale example of a conflict that I worked on around 10 years ago um, and I'm still uh, following for the purpose of my graduate class is the river <laughs> that flows through Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, it's the Chattahoochee River and it's got a, um, three uh, names by the time it gets to the Gulf of Mexico called uh, Apalachicola-Chattahoochee-Flint or ACF uh, river system. And it's a really interesting um, resource. We've um, got a mega city uh, of Atlanta with some four million people or something like that, and growing fast. Um, And then the river flows on down through farmland and other small cities in Georgia and Alabama, and eventually into Florida, where it runs into Apalachicola Bay, which is a wonderful fishery. So Florida is really interested in maintaining the quality of that fishery. Atlanta needs the water supply. And all the communities and farmers and power plants below Atlanta are worried that Atlanta is going to take all the water and they're going to end up short. And so it's been a conflict that's been going on almost 20 years Um, with a very – well, actually more than 20 years. I should have said more like 25 years because I was working on it in the early 90s. And it has involved a failed – Um, interstate compact that was passed by congress but which went by the wayside because the states couldn't follow through on it um millions and millions of dollars of studies and legal fees and on and on it's just been quite a conflict and you know the uh, those really large-scale conflicts like that unless you have some political involvement in some way to resolve those going beyond just the ordinary mechanics of law and engineering uh they're just going to persist and so um that's that's a real visible example of large-scale conflict and there's plenty of others out there too
0: right you know i first read about the that river system and the the conflicts involved in charles fishman's book the big thirst um and it, it it was it was ironic in that when a the reservoir that serves atlanta was being built um I think Atlanta had an opportunity to financially contribute and kind of secure a, a source of water and they they said they didn't need it at that time. I can't remember exact the exact details, but it's interesting that now you know the chickens have come home to roost and they they needed that water out of the Chattahoochee.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: yeah, so could you what what were the reasons the uh compact agreement failed?
1: Well, um uh, to make a long story short, um, I was working on it at that time, so I've got a lot of details. And um, it, the, the the reservoir above Atlanta, Lake Lanier, was built by the Corps of Engineers. It was a federal agency uh, under the Department of Defense. And um, back, I think they even say it was Mayor Hartzell who was the one who wouldn't pay for any of that to get Atlanta the water. Anyway, when the project was built, it was an example of a federally subsidized uh, water uh, resources project, which initially had certain purposes like navigation and so on that Congress uh, approved. And um, so that was uh, built and put in place before Atlanta became the mega city that it is today. Well, by the late 70s when drought was, starting to affect the river, and people could see that having that water stored uh, is, was a tremendously valuable uh, resource. Um, the thinking started to change, and, and negotiations started on how to use that water and so on. So by the time I was got involved, which was about 1990, and I was working on the Alabama side, so I was not a non-partisan participant. I was considered, you know, one of the partisans with a special uh, interest since I was representing one of the states. Uh, the negotiations were already kind of kind of testy, and it all came down to how you determine um, how to uh, allocate the water among the different parties during dry weather periods. And there were two rivers linked together to make it even more complicated. the river on the western side is called the um, alabama coosa Tallapoosa system, and it's linked to the Apalachicola-Chattahoochee-Flint River system <clears throat> through interbasin transfers up at the north end. That's all complex, you know. You'd have to look at a map to, to see that. But Atlanta, as a great and growing city, wants to stick its straws out and draw water from any sources that it can, so it wants to tap all those different river basins. So the negotiations were really over both river basins one called the ACT the other one called the ACF and uh the interbasin uh the interstate compact uh, appeared to be the logical solution the only way to go and so on. So negotiations started between the two states um Alabama Georgia and Florida I should have said three states and the federal uh government agencies mainly the Army Corps of Engineers but there'd be other agencies concerned, like the Department of Energy, with all the electric power that's generated there and so on. And they were trying to get the um, uh, the compact uh, negotiated so it could be passed by the legislatures of each of the states and then eventually by Congress. And it just kept getting bogged down until Newt Gingrich, who was the Speaker of the House at the time, personally intervened, and I don't know who got him to intervene, but he personally intervened to get the parties to the table so that they would uh, sign this interstate compact and it could be considered by Congress. And that happened and it was passed. and um, it specified things to be done to include developing what's called an allocation formula. Now the allocation formula sounds simple like it would you would say, well, 20% of the water goes here and 40% goes there and so on, but it's not simple like that. It depends um, um, the, the weather, how much water is stored in the different reservoirs, how much you um, are willing to have released under certain conditions, and, and, and this includes up and down uh, the river with different triggers and so on. So it's extremely complex to come up with something like this allocation formula. To make long story short, they didn't agree on the allocation formula, and that's the reason, the, the core reasons to enter uh, state compact failed. It, the time ran out on it. Uh, by the time that was um, uh, going on and the time had run out, uh, what this had devolved to was uh, personal negotiations among the governors of the three, three states involved. And when the governors would come in, a new one would come in, they would think and I'm speculating here, surely we can get together and resolve this and if you're the governor of Georgia and you are thinking about how important that water supply is for Atlanta, you're going to be highly motivated to do that. The other governor's not as motivated because what Georgia gets is going to seem to be their loss and what they're after. So that hasn't worked out and there's been a a big court case or maybe more than one, I haven't followed all of them, but one um, last year or the year before, went in Atlanta's favor, which was going to give them more ability to use some of that water out of Lake Lanier. That, that basically involves a reallocation of uh, the purpose of the lake. Uh, it was originally more flood control and hydropower, not so much water supply because Mayor Harsall didn't pay his dues, uh, but giving more um, uh, of the uh, allocation of the water to the water supply, so Atlanta could get more. As I understand it, that was the essence of that court decision, and uh, but it's far from over because there's challenges and many other things, and um, I'm not sure exactly sure how it's going to be uh, resolved in the in the end.
0: Okay, and so what I'm getting from you is the the, the compact process did not work out, and so we're we're reverting to almost. You know, what did it revert to, and what was the basis for these court decisions uh, that that helped kind of, at least in the interim, allocate water?
1: Well, it's a good question, because um, we who are kind of academics, are always looking at how you can explain how the water management uh, process really works, and you would think that the way it would work is all the parties would get together and see how much water there was and figure out a fair allocation formula and work it out and then um, implement an agreement like that because it made sense. And you um, had done the hydrologic studies and engineering studies and and that's what you really needed to do. That that would be the rational way to do it. But once the political process kicks in and you look at all the incentives of the parties who um, should be cooperating but they don't have the incentive to cooperate, that breaks down and so you need this governance structure of some kind uh, to make it work out. What we're trying to figure out is why the allocation formula didn't work and why the interstate compact failed and what that has to say to us about um, the, the future governance of water for large scale conflicts like this and the, the 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 root problem is one of uh the overlapping and sometimes uh, conflicting jurisdictions of governments the fact that um water is a is a resource that belongs to everybody but nobody c- controls it in any total way uh, and there there just isn't a built-in mechanism to resolve those so when it comes to all those court cases and conferences between the governors and so on, that's basically the way this works out at the higher level, that it, the decisions are made politically and by the courts, and they're not made by any administrative agencies like the Corps of Engineers through engineering studies and hydrology studies and so on. It's, it's not a seamless, integrated uh, process by any means. It's a political, legal um, and the process of conflict resolution, hopefully, which results in something which is at least equitable. Um, but when it comes to asserting certain rights, like environmental rights, um, a lot of times there's nobody at the table to represent that particular interest group, and so it could be they could be left out of the, uh, the negotiations in the end. Sometimes that kind of a problem. Um, it turns out to be reversed on its head, like on the other coast of the United States out in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, a, a, a problem of comparable magnitude in terms of scale is the um, Bay Delta uh, issue, of San Francisco San Joaquin uh, River uh, Delta conflict, where um, There's been a court decision um, and administrative decisions to release a lot of water into the bay for um, environmental purposes, and the farmers feel like they've been shortchanged, and that's, that's gotten a lot of publicity in the last few years. But it's, it's another example of how you're never going to be able to get that resolved until you get all the political and legal ducks lined up to, to come up with a good solution
0: okay so the the political process and the legal process play a big role in establishing these governance structures. It sounds like uh, to help you know smooth over the real world issues of how we 're going to allocate all this water have you what What goes into establishing these governance structures that actually work? what makes an effective governance structure
1: well it's a, it's a good question and um in my own research and writing, when I write about different um, aspects of water management, I've kind of um, identified that question as one that needs a lot more attention than it has received in the past. Um, And what is what is needed is some kind of um, integrating entity, uh, and it's going to be case-specific, but uh, an integrating entity um, that the, the different parties involved in water in, in a particular location will agree. Um, to, to, they'll agree to give it some authority, uh, work with it in a participatory way, and, and, and work together to, to solve the issues. That's what's needed um, in, in, to sort of bridge the gap, fill in the empty space in this uh, mismatch of governance institutions. I had a graduate student who <clears throat> came up a few years ago and decided she would take that on as her thesis topic. It had to do with an issue in Florida, of all places. It was the uh, uh, sharing of water in the Tampa, Florida, St. Petersburg area, rapid gro- rapidly growing area, not enough water supply, a lot of environmental conflicts, uh, inability to get along on these different boards and commissions, regulatory agencies, and so on. And so she analyzed um, the politics of that for her thesis and um, what emerged there, not because of her thesis, but just because the political process was evolving that way, was the creation of a a regional entity called Tampa Bay Water, which works out pretty well uh, for the water supply in that area. So regional institutions like that, it's not gonna be a cookie cutter solution by any means but it, but it is some kind of an authority structure that the different entities can work through to to work these things out
0: okay so let's take this a step further and and talk about the pecos river experience and how is the governance uh structure established for the pecos river and let's just start with that and then we can move on into your experience as the river master
1: It's an interesting uh, historical development, and there's a lot of them in the West that follow uh, about the same timetable. And if you think about the development of the West, and, you know, we're coming out of the Wild West, it gets to be 1890, 1900, and so on. Uh, It's going to start looking more modern now, and it's not going to be so much the Old West. But by then, um, these water conflicts have developed because there was not enough water for all the farming and cities and competition and so on. On the Pecos, that's about when uh, the conflict started developing, shortly before 1900. Um, And then all through the early part of the 20th century, the historical record shows conflicts of different kinds. But it took until um, 1949, I think it was, to get uh, an interstate compact signed. Um, And they did that. You know there were attempts before that. It wasn't that different from the Atlanta case. One state or another state would not agree and so on. So they got an interstate compact signed in 1948 and I think it's 49. Well, it worked to some extent, but it didn't work uh, to other extents. And so in 1973, uh, Texas filed a original suit in the Supreme Court to challenge uh, the compact because they felt that they were being shortchanged in water. Well, it took 15 years from the filing of the lawsuit to get it settled in 1988. That's when I started as a river master. Um, And all these different issues were litigated um, and adjudicated by the special master in between to put into place the provisions of the uh, duties of the river master and how the future allocation of water is going to be done. So that, that's just kind of a fast uh, run-through, a long history of that.
0: What are the duties of the river master as kind of settled by the parties in that Supreme Court original action?
1: Well, it's it's a ins- insightful question in the sense that when you set up a compact, there's are certain things that have to be done to make it work, like the, there need to be rules, there needs to be provisions to monitor what's going on. If parties don't comply, there needs to be an enforcement mechanism, et cetera. So all of those kinds of things are pretty well known and experienced from interstate compacts, but also international water treaties between countries, which are not that different than our interstate water compacts. And, um, The problem with the PECOS setup is you only had two states and then you um, involved in the compact and you have the federal government involved in the compact because they had some federal reservoirs of the Corps of Engineers and Bureau of Reclamation on the river basin. So you have three parties, but the two states (coughs) were not not willing to let the federal government have a vote uh, in it and so um, we had a conundrum, there was no tie-breaking vote. So the special master, Charles Myers, um, who was appointed by the court, uh, developed this idea of a river master. There's one or two other examples around the country where you have such a duty like that. And the states accepted that as a concept for the resolution of the suit. So uh, Charles Myers developed the, the duties of the river master, which are, uh, to take the uh, the data every year, figure out <coughs> how the allocation formula uh, will work for that year, uh, develop a, <coughs> uh, a number which is either the surplus or the shortfall of the water delivery. In this case it's uh, New Mexico as the upstream state has its delivery obligation. Um, then if there's any, that's one of the duties is the annual accounting. Another duty is if either of the states wants to um, initiate a proposed change, then the river master um, evaluates this proposal for a change in the rules, like um, if a gauge is relocated or a new reservoir is built or something like that, you have to re-figure out um, how to allocate the water in that particular reach. Anything that comes up that's out of the ordinary has to be decided, so that's another duty of the Rivermaster. And then uh, the other duty is to enforce the provisions if the uh, water deliveries are not met, and the Rivermaster needs to take steps to make sure the water deliveries are met and so on. So it boils down to a fairly simple set of procedures, uh, which are not always as simple to carry out, but in terms of just what they are, they're relatively simple.
0: Okay, and so you've been the Rivermaster since 1998. How did you get appointed the Rivermaster?
1: Well, they were looking for a, um, somebody who had experience with uh, Western Water, understood what that was all about, somebody who had, had some experience in administering things and enforcing things and um, had some idea about the conflict that can develop. Um, and they just went about um, getting recommendations, and they had recommendations, and my name bubbled to the top. Uh, and I was contacted by um Charles Myers and we he interviewed me and later I was contacted by uh, the court um the justice in charge of the uh, case was justice Byron White who actually was from Colorado so he knows know, knew something about water himself and he talked to me and I actually went back to see him and um, you know, we talked it over a little bit, and I was surprised at how much uh, he and other justices knew about water cases, because um, the, a lot of them bubble up to the Supreme Court because they originate from one state suing another state. Uh, so that's how I got appointed, and it was back in '88. So it was 1988, uh, going on 27 years now um, that I uh, ago that I got appointed and. Uh, it was just basically a result of uh, their needing someone who had those um, qualifications and uh, it ended up that way. There are not a lot of river masters uh, like mine in um, interstate water suits. So the only one that I know of which is called a river master is on the Delaware River Basin, New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and so on. Um, and the river master is. Um, a staff member of the U.S. Geological Survey, but you do have a lot of river masters and special masters, uh, uh, judge, water judges of different kinds um, in action in um, smaller watersheds and rivers of different kinds. It's, it's not that, it's not totally unrelated to the uh, ditch rider type of, um, of a job or water commissioner that we call it in Colorado where somebody is looking after the allocation of water in a particular stream.
0: Okay, now has has the current drought in Texas and the and the Southwest um, has that impacted the governance model at all?
1: Well, it would seem that uh, a drought would would stress everything, including the governance model. Um, so far, uh, we haven't seen that on the Pecos, and um, to anticipate that, the the people who figured out. Uh, way to do the allocation formula uh, put in there into play a method um, that would take into account uh, droughts and on the pecos river it's a three-year averaging process and the delivery obligation is um, related to how much uh, new water there is um, in the upstream state so there's a formula that takes all of that into account it was developed by famous engineer named royce tipton who um was a colorado engineer and had a lot to do with the colorado river basin and and its compact also uh and on the colorado river they averaged over 10 year periods
0: okay so neil do you have any thoughts on future water conflict
1: well we're going to have a lot of conflicts on over water in the future people talk about it um through their books and articles, and um, it's it's almost like writing about um, future water conflicts can create interesting scare stories where uh, people like to be alarmist and so on. And some of that's probably overdone. I mean, it does seem like the governance uh, system that we have in the United States will uh, adjust to different aspects of climate change and future things like that. And but, you know, if you have sea level rise and you have more disasters, uh, droughts that last a lot longer, uh, cool. we're going to have to reexamine some of these. And there could be some things that will have worked in the past that will come apart and have to be reassembled, right. interstate compacts, allocation formulas, uh, water entitlements and things like that. But we do have a system uh, which is pretty uh, resilient, so I'm optimistic on that. But in some of the uh, countries that don't have a well-developed uh, procedures, rule of law, um, a lot of experience like we do, I kind of wonder, and take China, for example, with its tremendous industrialization, the way the government is just deciding that they can you know, redirect uh, rivers and build large reservoirs and so on. Um, it's without a lot of public participation you kind of wonder if there might not be some some, uh, negative consequences of that (laughs) socially and environmentally and so on, which could be a lot worse than you'd ever think. And, of course, there's uh, powder keg, uh, Middle Eastern um, water conflicts in different places, not just um, Israel and uh, Palestine and all of that, but (laughs) the Nile River, Egypt and Ethiopia and Sudan and those different countries like that. So, as the international stage changes in the future, we're liable to see some conflicts that, that go beyond what we've seen in the past. You
0: know, Neil, this has been an absolutely fascinating talk we've had today. I wish we could go on for a lot longer, but we're drawn to, uh, you know, pushing up against the limits of our time. Um, again, I I think it was absolutely fascinating. I'd love to talk, talk with you more about all this, but... Uh, In closing, could you just tell folks who'd like to find out more about you uh, where they can go to do that?
1: Yeah, thanks, Dave. Um, Well, here at Colorado State, uh, water education and water research is what we do. So they can find out about me in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Colorado State University, which comes right up on the web, you know, Um, and I'm always happy to talk to anybody who wants to contact me about uh, the subjects we've been discussing or opportunities for uh, to study water, it makes a terrific career. And um, we have people who, who are doing that and um, I like to talk about that. So that's that's how they can contact me.
0: Terrific, well, thanks so much, Neil. Greatly appreciate your time. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, David. All right, you bet. Well, that was my interview with Professor Neil Grigg. He has a great way of telling stories. And he was terrific to listen to, I'm sure you'll agree. Let's get into the key takeaways, which I thought could be boiled down into just one. Water conflict arises when no one body exercises governing jurisdiction over a body of water, whether it be a river or a lake. The water conflict escalates when the political states wanting water from that body cannot agree on a governance structure due to their respective self-interests. Neil's discussion of the ACF conflict, that still is not resolved, sheds a lot of light on the issue. As Neil suspected, Alabama and Florida don't want to agree on a resolution because whatever they give up, Georgia gets. The irony here is that Atlanta could have largely avoided the conflict by contributing money to build Lake Lanier, and that's a warning for today's leaders that a vision is needed when looking at investing in water infrastructure projects. As to the resolution of the ACF conflict, it's still a long ways off, and it'll be interesting to see whether Alabama and Florida change their positions if the court cases continue to go against them. Well, you can check the show notes out for this session at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 16. And please don't be bashful in letting me know what interested you about the interview by leaving a comment on the show notes or by emailing me at david at thewatervalues.com. You can also tweet at me at DTM1993. And finally, if you've been enjoying the podcast, please consider leaving a rating and a review on iTunes and Stitcher and any other podcast directory on which you download the podcast. That'd be so very helpful in spreading the word about the podcast And don't forget to tell your friends about the podcast and to sign up for the Water Values newsletter, which can be done at thewatervalues.com. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it.